Amen. Now we look in Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, and we find these words of the scripture recorded, and they say, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, or three and one half years. Now then today, in this particular chapter and the following chapter, chapter 13, the Bible reveals to us what Satan has been after ever since the dawn of time. And it's amazing to understand and to discover the very uh, ruling passion of Satan. And that's perhaps what I should call this very particular chapter, chapter 12. The ruling passion of Satan. First of all, let me mention that the ultimate purpose and desire and passion of Satan has been, number one, to eradicate all who in any way or form remind him that God has a divine purpose and plan for this earth. Now, the devil doesn't want to be reminded of the awful consequence that, is, that he is involved in when it comes to the purpose and the plan of God. In fact, no unsaved or unregenerate person wants to be reminded of their fate. In other words, men today don't want to be told that unless they repent, they'll perish. Men don't want to think about the fact that if I do not get saved, I'm going to hell when I die. In other words, the devil is the mastermind behind the whole thing. And he would like to eradicate anything that reminds or that jogs the memory that in God's plan, God's plan and purpose that his fate has indeed been sealed. There's a second purpose that has been lifelong as far as the passion of Satan is concerned. And that is the unification of the world under one single head. He has been after it since time immemorial. And the devil is going to work, is working on that now. And we hear a lot of talk about a one world order. I've talked to you about a one world religion. We've talked about, and there's in the making, a one world currency. 
And I want to tell you a better wake up, folks. In other words, these things are coming to pass, and that is one of the schemes and the passions of Satan himself. Ever since the Tower of Babel and the, and the city of Babylon, when Nimrod, inspired by the same devil, has att- attempted to bring the pre- people of the world into one, ah, ever since, the devil's been after the same thing. And so there will be that culmination as we'll see as we continue our studies. The third ruling passion of Satan is the adoration of that is, of himself, by the entire human race. The devil desires worship. He desires to be followed. He desires to be adored. And yet many a man and woman unknowingly gives their adoration to the devil even though they are not aware of it. These two chapters then, chapter 12 and chapter 13, you'll find they review much that has not been said about the things happening from the sounding of the seven trumpets of judgment. So what John does and the Holy Spirit does through John, he goes back and he fills in and gives us additional information as to the things that are going to be happening in that period of time during the tribulation period. Now, in chapter 12, as I've said, here is revealed Satan's ruling passion. But chapter 13 reveals to us Satan's regent prince, the Antichrist, the beast, the one world ruler. And so in these two chapters, there's a great deal of information that we need to absorb and need to understand. Now, there are four great things in chapter 12 that are given to us, and uh, let me just mention those, Uh, and those great things are designated as such. In verse number one, notice there is a great wonder, a great wonder. In verse number three, the Bible designates a great red dragon. In verse number 12, there is the mention of a great wrath, a great wrath. And then in verse number 14, the Bible talks about a great eagle, a great eagle. Now then, those simple, I just mentioned that in passing. I want for our thoughts together in this chapter to consider actually three things. We'll only consider one of the three this morning. You'll notice in verse 1 through 6, the woman. The woman. And then in verse 7 through 12, you'll find the war. The war in heaven. And then at verse 13 through 17, you'll find John talking about the wrath or the woe, the wrath that will fall, uh, that will come in that particular, uh, in that particular period. All right, let's look now with those introductory remarks. Let's look at verse 1 through 6 and see what John reveals to us about this personage of the woman. By the way, there are seven distinct personages. And if you have a Schofield Bible, you'll find that they are mentioned in order uh, as in Schofield's notes in, in that Bible. There are seven personages who have to do in the drama of this great period of the judgment of God upon this earth. Now then, with that in mind, let's look at the woman for, for just a few moments. Here in verse 1 through 6, The Holy Spirit reminds us 
that he is about to describe a great, he says, a great wonder. Now, the words translated great wonder are the words semion mega. And you don't have to remember that, but it simply, literally is translated a great sign. A great sign. And I think that'll help us understand uh, the sense of the word wonder. A great sign. Now, what he is doing is this. He is saying that what I'm about to reveal is symbolic. That is, it is a symbol of something else. So the Lord throughout the book of Revelation, in fact, I think there are about four particular great wonders or great signs as we'll see them as we come to them. But nonetheless, here is the sign, a wonder, a symbol of something else. So the question comes, and that is this. What does this woman symbolize? What is the Lord saying through John in this symbolic message? Now, there are basically, I guess we could say basically, three theories that men have advanced as to who this woman is, who she represents. For example, number one, there's the theory, and I mean it as a theory, the theory of the Roman church. The Roman Catholic church says that this woman is a symbol of Mary, the virgin mother of our Lord. In fact, the very famous artist, the Spanish artist by the name of Bartolome Murillo has some very famous paintings of the virgin Mary. Uh, she, he has painted her in that traditional blue and white robe. Her body is shown with a great, being great with child. And as well, uh, the glory of the sun is about her as a, though a halo. Uh, he shows her with a crescent moon under her feet and a coronet of stars uh, around her head. You may have seen that, and by the way, I've seen that painting, uh, or at least a reproduction of it in some Baptist homes, uh, and that troubles me. But nonetheless, here is a representation of what the artist and the Roman church is saying. It is supposed to portray her assumption into heaven in her glory as the queen of heaven. The Bible knows nothing about a queen of heaven. And furthermore, the Bible knows nothing and reveals nothing about the assumption of Mary into heaven. In other words, it is the teaching that Mary, like our Lord, ascended into heaven. But my friend, there is not one shred of Bible evidence for that kind of theory. And furthermore, let me say this. It is absurd to say that this woman is representative of Mary for you find the woman in heaven giving birth to Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection. It's just absurd. In other words, that is a theory that is advanced by the Roman church. And then there are some Protestants who indeed interpret this symbol of the woman as being a symbol of the church, the body of believers. But yet if that were the case, here is a great problem. If that is the case in the symbolism, if the woman is a symbol of the church, of the redeemed, then how do you explain the woman giving birth to the child? 
That would have to be interpreted as that Jesus, or, or, or that uh, Mary, uh, the church, representing the church, gave birth to Jesus. Jesus did not come out of the church. He was not born of the church. The church received her life and her foundation by the Lord Jesus, not vice versa. And so that is, uh, is somewhat a ridiculous theory. And then a more ridiculous theory than that, advanced by uh, the late Mary, Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddy, uh, odd infinitum, uh, names attached onto her, uh, who is the founder of what is known as the Christian science religion, which, by the way, is neither Christian nor science, like great nut flakes, neither grapes nor nuts. And yet again, uh, here, is, uh, here is her theory as to who this woman is. Mary Baker Eddy says that the woman represented her. She is the woman. She also says the man-child that the woman gave birth to was the philosophy of Christian science and that the dragon was mortal mind, whatever in the world that meant, and that this was the dragon attempting to destroy her new religion. Now, I think I could only respond to that in the words of the late Dr. Harry Ironside when he responded to that theory, and he said simply, and I, I, I respond likewise, I need not take up the time of sane people to try to say anything more about it. And so then here, there are theories about who this woman is. But the question remains, who is this woman? Now, let me point out three things about the woman that I think will unveil the symbolism of what the Lord is saying to us. There are three things. Jot them down, if you will. Notice, first of all, the prophetic significance. What is the significance prophetically of this woman? The prophetic significance. Notice, secondly, the prolonged suffering. The prolonged suffering. And then we'll notice, thirdly, the promised seed. The promised seed. Three things. Let's look at them. First of all, as to the prophetic significance. Let me say without any question in my mind or without any fear of contradiction that this woman represents to us the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. And I think that becomes very evidently clear as the chapter itself unfolds for us. Now let me point out two things in relation to that prophetic significance. First of all, John draws our attention in this symbol to the glorious dignity of the woman. The glorious dignity, if you please, of Israel. Verse 1, again, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now the very description calls your mind, if you're acquainted with the Bible, back to one chapter in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. In fact, this is the only passage, our Old Testament reference, that corresponds in any way to this particular sign or symbol. Back in Genesis chapter 37, you might make a note of it, at verse 9 and verse 10 and 11. You remember that Joseph had two dreams. One of the dreams Joseph had was the dream of the sheaves bowing before his sheaves. That the second dream is that dream that sheds light on this particular uh, symbol in Revelation. 
Joseph dreamed in that second dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed in obeisance to him. Now, Joseph understood that that meant that his parents, sun and moon, along with his 11 brothers, the 11 stars, would bow down to him. And that was verified by the very first dream in a little different uh, picture as far as the mental vision was concerned. In other words, what Joseph saw was this. It was God's revelation to him that Israel would be preserved through him. That Joseph would be the savior of his own family, of his mother, his father, and his brethren. And you'll study this in the book of Genesis and what a thrill it is to study it. And that is the typology of Joseph to that of Jesus. How Joseph is such a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hated and despised by his brethren. Cast into the well. Sold into slavery. Cast into prison. Hated and maligned and mistreated. But finally being raised to prominence as the ruler and the sustainer and the provider of those in the drought stricken period in the land of, of Egypt. So though Israel then Though Israel, like Joseph and others, like, is, like, like, uh, is, uh, like Joseph, Israel has failed repeatedly to be faithful to God. But yet in spite of that, I want to remind you of something, the nation of Israel still belongs to God. Now there are a lot of folks who come along and say, well, the Lord just, I mean, he's done away with Israel and Israel is no longer important in the mind of God or the economy of God, but you need to read Romans chapter 11 if that's what you think. Paul said, what, has God cast off his people forever? Oh no, he said, God forbid. But he said he's just there in blindness for a period of time until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. You see, today Israel is in spiritual blindness nationally. And yet here we are in the times of the Gentile, which soon will come to a fulfillment and to an end. But nonetheless, here Israel yet is God's chosen people. Now notice in the picture of the sun, the moon, and the stars. It seems that the Lord's Spirit is saying Israel's glory is the glory of the heavens. The glory of the heavens. How, I think how fitting. When the Lord said to Abraham in chapter 15 and verse 5, you remember how he described his innumerable seed? And he said, they will be as the stars of the heaven. The stars of the heaven. Have you seen Israel's flag? The star of David? What a glory then, God seems to say, is in store for the nation of Israel. And listen, I would say what I've said time and again on the, in these messages. When Israel became a recognized nation again in the world in 1948, it was one of the greatest eye-openers relative to prophecy you'll ever read anywhere. For 2,000 years without a country. And yet, as God had said, he would give them their land. Now, bud, I want to tell you something. It would take one trillion guesses, one in one trillion guesses, to try to come to that conclusion by mere supposition or guesswork. 
The Lord said it hundreds of years, even before our Lord was born, that this land was theirs. And God has indeed in these days shown us evidence of that fact. They do not possess the land fully and totally now, but they will. God has promised and they will. And so here uh, you find that no wonder, no wonder the devil hates this people. For Israel reminds Satan of all that he once was and all that he lost by reason of his sin by, uh, that brought about his fall. Reminds him of what he was. You know, that's a bitter pill for people to swallow. To think what they have been or could have been, could have been, but they fell. In the book of Isaiah 14 and verse 12, the prophet speaks concerning the, uh, the Satan and says, How art thou fallen from heaven? Notice his name here. O Lucifer, son of the morning. And the word Lucifer means a bright and shining light. Here is this one who's fallen and now the Lord is saying the glory of Israel is going to be the glory of the heavens. The moon, the stars, the sun representative of this great family of people. And when Satan sees this, he is enraged and hatred boils within him. A second thing of the two things I want you to see is this. John draws our attention not only to the glorious dignity of Israel. But he draws our attention to their destiny, a glorious destiny God has given to Israel. Notice the verse says, she being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Now that statement takes my mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Where we have the mention, the first prophetic mention in the Bible of God's ultimate purpose. And that is, and revealing as well, Satan's purpose. The verse reminds us in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between, notice the wording, thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise, that is the seed, shall bruise thy head, the serpent's head, crush his head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, here the noose is put around Satan's neck. Here in this first prophecy of the Bible, the Lord is saying, your days are numbered, the sentence is given, and the ultimate end has been announced and proclaimed. Now then, this promised seed, it is very clear. The seed that he talks about, we know as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That seed would come through none other than the chosen nation of Israel. Now, the great hope of the nation was the coming of the seed. The dream and the desire of every devout Jewish woman was that perhaps she would bring into the world this promised seed. This promised seed was the very theme of the preaching of the prophets of the Old Testament. And in fact, everything, literally all else, really pointed toward this grand and glorious climax when that prophecy would be fulfilled, the seed would come, his head would be crushed, and in the crushing of the head of the serpent, the heel of the seed, the Lord Jesus, would be bruised. Israel's glorious destiny then 
was to be that the nation, they would be the nation through whom blessing would come to all the peoples of the world. And that's what the Lord said to Abraham. You remember his promise? Back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number three, Paul, the Lord said to Abraham, in thee, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And what he's talking about ultimately is the very blessing of the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of man. It is through this nation the destiny of this nation was that they should be the instrument through whom the Christ would come into this world. Now, that's just a brief look at this woman, the prophetic significance of the woman, the nation of Israel through whom the promised one would come. Now, I want you to look at a second thing. And the second factor I want you to look at is this prolonged suffering that is very evident in relation to the woman. That is, prolonged suffering in relation to the nation of Israel. I think it goes without, without any contradiction. No nation or people on earth has suffered so severely and so long as the Jew, the people of Israel. Both secular and sacred history tells us of that. And yet what suffering they have experienced. But I want you to look at verse 3 and 4 and note, if you will, the cause of her suffering. Who is behind the suffering of the people of Israel? Who is behind, for example, let me put it in more uh, up-to-date terms. Who is behind the anti-Semitism in our world? Where does it come from? The cause of the suffering of Israel. Verse 3 and verse 4. And there appeared another wonder, a sign in heaven. And behold, that is a symbol of something else. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of the heaven, cast into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now then, the picture that the Spirit of God gives us here, I think goes without saying, is representative of the devil, Satan, that old dragon. By the way, the word dragon appears 13 times in the book of Revelation, 11 times in this one chapter. It appears once in chapter 16. It appears once again in chapter 20. And in every instance, it is a reference to the arch enemy of our Lord and of his people, the devil himself. Now, a dragon, in Bible terminology, a flying, a flying serpent, which has been forever a biblical symbol of Satan. And in Revelation 20 and verse 2, you'll find that description relating to this great enemy. The fact that this dragon has upon its head, uh, has upon its head uh, crowns and horns. Uh, those things are in the Bible symbols of earthly power. Symbols of earthly power. And the scripture is clear about the authority, the power, the ruling ability of Satan. In Ephesians 2 and verse 2, for example, Paul says, he is the prince, that's a ruling regent. He is the prince of the power of the air. In John 12 and verse 31, Jesus said, he is the prince of this world. And so you have here uh, with the head, with the horns and the crowns, a symbol, and that's what John is telling us to be aware of. 
this great wonder, this great sign is a symbol not only of the, as a dragon of the devil himself, but rather it is a symbol of his earthly power. He then is the cause of the woman's suffering. Now verse 4 reveals something else. He with his tail, the John in this vision said, drew a third part of the stars. Now I think that goes without saying that the stars here are representative of the angels who fell at the fall of Satan. Is God. In fact, in the book of Job, the angels referred to as stars, and the stars sang at the dawning of creation. The morning stars sang, talking about not lights out there, but angelic beings. And so there's a reference here uh, to that. But verse 4 reveals that these angels who fell with Satan will follow him and will be marshaled together to afflict Israel in the latter time with great and terrible suffering. In fact, the hearts of evil men are stirred today by that same evil personality, stirred to hatred and to destroying this nation through whom God said all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, that has a twofold application I'm going to tell you a minute ago. Not as referred to the fact of the birth of Christ, but it refers to the reign of Christ. And through this nation of Israel, listen, the Bible said in the kingdom age, all nations will flow into it. Now, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world in that millennial reign of our Lord upon this earth. And it is through this nation there shall come uh, the rivers that bring about the healing of the nations and there is peace and prosperity and blessing. Ah, it is through this people. And no wonder then the devil despises and would stir wicked men to hatred and violence and murder and death to this people, though who have ignored God, failed God, blinded spiritually, yet God said they're mine and I have a purpose and plan for them and the devil's doing all he can to defeat that plan and that purpose of God blessing through that nation all of the families of the earth. Well, Matthew 24 verse 9, I think Jesus summed it up when he talked in this Jewish frame of mind. When those Jewish men came asking a Jewish question about a Jewish temple, a Jewish rabbi answered them. And it is a Jewish context altogether. And in Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus said, Then shall they deliver you, the nation of Israel, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Did you hear that? Does God mean all nations? Does he mean the United States? He means this country. He means every country in the world. He is saying that there is going to be such a marshalling of fallen demonic powers marshaled by their ringleader, the old devil, the dragon himself, until all the nations of the world will hate this woman, will hate this nation of Israel. And already, you don't, you don't go a week without hearing some kind of uprising, an expression of hatred, of rejection, 
of anti-Semitic remarks and movements and so on. Not only that, but consider, if you will, not of the cause of her suffering, but look at the course of the suffering of this woman. I think both the Bible and the history books that you read in school and have read back up what we're about to say about the sad and long tale of suffering of this people called Israel. And yet the Lord a long time ago, before he ever brought them out of the land of Egypt, assured them of something. Well, he assured them basically of two things. You remember when old Moses was back on the backside of the desert and he looked around and saw that bush aflame? And he went over and began to look at it and here's the thing that amazed him. The bush was a burning, flaming fire, but the bush was not consumed. What a preparation God was giving to Moses, the leader of this nation of Israel now, as they come out of Egypt. What a message he was giving to Moses, said Moses. There's going to be a lot of fiery trials for this people. But Moses, they will never perish from this earth. Listen, that nations and peoples have perished. But from the beginning of Israel itself, the nation, they are still a people. Many of their customs are still maintained today. Many of their rituals, many of, much of their lifestyle. The whole story. God has preserved this people amidst all of the long course of their suffering. Pharaoh, you remember, was the first man who started on a large scale plan the eradication of the Jews. He said, we'll get rid of them. I want the army to go out there and I mean swallow them up, destroy every last one of them. They've been a pain in my side. I'm glad to get rid of them, but let's rid the earth of them. Pharaoh started the first plan of eradication. The Babylonians then come along later and they enslave these people, take them down, make slaves out of them. And you'd think surely they'd perish. Later years pass and they history of the course of the suffering of the Jew. The Romans come in. They raz their, uh, they burn their cities. They rape their women. They destroy their properties. They crucify them around Jerusalem. Josephus said there were literally hundreds of crosses upon which Jews hung in, who now were despised by the Roman leaders. And yet though powerful as Rome, they could not destroy them. Fire, yes. Burning trial, yes, but God said the bush will burn or the flame will be seen rather, but the bush itself will not be destroyed. And even in more recent times, Canute of England, one of the famous leaders of England, banished every Jew from England. Banished every one of them. Along following him years later came Edward I of England and literally he drove every last Jew that could be found off of the very continent of England and of Great Britain. And yet England has been for many centuries known to us as a haven for the castaways and, and, the, and the rejects as it were. But here even this nation rejects, banishes, pushes them from their shore. In France and Germany, in history you remember they were blamed for the black plague. These people, they're the cause of it. As a result of that, as a means of bringing more persecution, more affliction, more death, more hatred to bear on these people. And do you realize that the same year that Christopher Columbus is said to have discovered America, that Spain drove all Jews from their kingdom? We don't want them. They were despised. They were, they were uh, rejects. Maybe you remember reading of the Dreyfus Affair back in the year 1894 
when there was such a turmoil as to, as to blame uh, the uh, uh, economic problems and all the political and national problems uh, in France upon the Jews so as to keep them from achieving any high ranks in the army and leadership of that country. They had a scandal and they banished them again. And of more recent times, Hitler, the final solution, you ever wondered who was behind that? I'm going to tell you somebody besides Hitler is behind it. The old dragon who hates this woman because of what has happened through her and will come through her. The devil would like to eradicate this people and he's attempted time and again. Six million plus Jews treated most inhumanely, almost to the point of sickening. If you viewed any of those documentaries on television in the past year, it is a sickening sight. Bodies of Jews, men and women and children packed up like cordwood. The skins of many a Jewish man and woman were used and tanned and made shades for lamps for people. Literally human guinea pigs they became unmentionable suffering and torture and yet it was an attempt of this old enemy to prolong the suffering of this people that God centuries ago had said will prove a blessing to all the families of the earth and now in our day the Arabs with constant threat of annihilation to the Jews the threat of chemical warfare the desire to obliterate Israel, to block, blot them off of the face of the earth. Do you know who's behind all that? No, it's not against flesh and blood that we fight, but it's against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, the scripture declares, against spiritual wickedness in the high are ruling places. No wonder the woman then is revealed as a symbol of suffering Israel. The third fact about the woman is finally this, the promised seed. Look at the last part of verse 4. For to div and, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now here's a vision that John sees in heaven. It is a symbolic thing that he sees. But it carries us even back to that time when the Christ child appeared on this earth. You remember what happened then? Same old dragon, same old hateful enemy who said to Herod, I've heard there's a king been born. Find out where he is and find out not only where he is, where he's been born, where you can find him and destroy him. And the law went out from Herod to kill every male child under two years of age. Now think of the suffering that inflicted on many a family in Israel. Every little child under two years of age, destroyed, killed, butchered. But you see, the devil doesn't care how many people suffer. He's after one, the Christ child, the nation of Israel. If he can afflict this that God has instituted and chosen for the fulfilling of his program, listen, he will do it. And here yet is that promised seed. Now, in relation to Satan's desire to devour him, I want you to notice three things that said. Now close. First, Satan could not harm him. He tried to, but he couldn't. 
He tried when Herod sent out the message to kill all the babies under two years of age. He stirred the hatred of the Pharisees and the religionists. The first time Jesus ever preached a sermon, they tried to throw him over a cliff and kill him. They didn't want him. The world hated him. They despised him. And finally, they nail him to a cross. And the devil thinks in glee, man, I have finished. I have conquered. I am victorious. But Satan could not harm the child. Neither could he halt him. H-A-L-T. He couldn't stop him. In verse number five, notice. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. The ruling with a rod of iron is said of no other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is saying simply this. He is coming to rule and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, John said this. 1 John 3 verse 8, make a note of it. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. From the very moment of that utterance of the first prophecy of his defeat, through the seed that had come through the woman Israel, from that very first moment of utterance, Satan set out to destroy the seed. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, it was not merely a case of jealousy and anger and envy. It was a case of a man becoming a dupe and a hand of Satan. Satan thought, here is the seed. Here is the one that the Lord prophesied. I will destroy him. I will kill him. I will defeat the purpose of the Almighty. And then there came the corrupting of, that, of man and the generation before the flood. The devil thought, if I can't do it by killing them, I'll corrupt them. And all of the imaginations of the hearts of men were only evil continually. The devil thought, surely, if I can pollute and corrupt the minds and hearts of people, God could not surely send a seed through that generation. But he failed to realize that though but eight people entered into the ark, it was through one of those sons of that man, Noah, that the seed would come. The devil again defeated, tried to halt him, but he couldn't. I think that indeed when man tried to exclude God from every vestige of thought at the Tower of Babel. Man excluding God. We're going to build a tower reach to heaven. We're going to make it there ourselves. God excluded. The devil thought, boy, I've accomplished here. But the Lord God looked down, confused the tongues of people, and they couldn't understand one from the other, and the whole project fell down flat. Oh, he tried to halt this coming of the seed. He knew about it. He, is, he knew what God had said. And then I see how he tries to corrupt old Abraham. Poor old Abe failed. God said, I'm going to give you a seed, Abraham. And it's through that seed that all the nations of the world be. You know what the devil did? The devil caused old Abraham's faith to waver a little. Went over and had a child by the handmaid of, of his wife, Hagar. There came that grace of people that are hostile and vicious and murderous in relation to this seed, Israel, the Arab people. And so here you find that the devil tries again. Joseph's slavery was going on, the wickedness of David and Solomon through whom the lineage of our Lord came, through David. David is corrupted. 
vile and sinful, murderous, lying, gets his neighbor drunk, commits adultery with his neighbor's wife. The devil all the while, you see, all the, in other words, every expression of sin. You know what the devil's trying to do even today? Oh, yes, the seed has come. He has been born, and that part is fulfilled. But the devil still is. He don't give up without a fight. He's not going to give up the world, the territory of the devil. He's not going to give it up without a fight. And he'll try to corrupt and, and, and molest and violate every human being on the face of this earth. And it's all because of what he knows is in the program of God for this planet earth. The awful cruelty at Calvary, but it failed. He couldn't even halt him there. He thought I've locked him up in a tomb, sealed the door, got Roman guards outside, buddy, I'm through with him now. But on the third day, hallelujah to God, he came out of that tomb, victorious, the conquering risen Christ, shook the keys of hell and death in the face of the devil and shouted the victory. Ah, oh, he could not halt him, even by death itself. Demon, disease, death, whatever could not halt him. God's program, indeed, in this hour will not be halted. Satan could not only not hurt him nor, or halt him, but he couldn't hinder him. In other words, even now when Israel is seen in that day of final tribulation, hostilities grow and demon hordes are stirring men to destroy Israel. And you know really what people are saying today? I hear it. Israel's the trouble, all the, all the, the source of all the trouble in this world. If we could get this Israeli thing settled, if somehow we could just settle out our world leaders saying, listen, everything will be all right. No wonder the nation of the world are going to hate this people. No wonder they're going to be sought and tried to be destroyed. The old dragon himself tries to destroy them even in the tribulation. But the Lord said, I've prepared a hiding place for you. You'll try to destroy him, and he said, hey, I'm going to make it. You talk about an airlift. God's going to give him an airlift into a place that he's already prepared. Now, some people say that prepared place is the ancient city of Petra. I do not know whether it is or not. It could be. But I'm not worried about whether it's Petra or not. I just know when God says, i got a hiding place for you, he's got one. And the devil tried to destroy them, but God said, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to take care of them. My friend, I'm glad I know a God like that who knows and cares and provides for his own. And for that reason, I'm encouraged in my own heart to know that since I've come to Jesus Christ, I've found the hiding place, the hiding place, the refuge. The Lord is my refuge. In him will I trust. I will not be afraid. In the time of trouble, he'll hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. I ask you one closing question. Are you in that hiding place? Have you come to that place God's prepared for every lost, sinful, hell-bound man and woman in Christ? And that refuge is in him. If you don't know him, I urge you to trust him today. Mr., ma'am, young person, listen. Terrible days are ahead for this world. Honey, I want to tell you something. This world is not getting any better. You think you're facing economic problems now, pardon the expression, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think we're facing world problems now, you ain't seen nothing yet. When God begins to sound those trumpets and those seals are broken, mister, 
such tribulation as this world has never known, Jesus said. God help you to be ready. Know Christ as your Savior, ready to go up when the shout is heard and the trumpet sounds and the voice says, come up hither. Are you ready? Let's bow together for prayer.